2: Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this event put on by the Poetry Society in association with the London Review Bookshop and Carcanet Press. I'm Jules Mann, the director of the Poetry Society, and welcome to all of you here. Um, Just to give you a little background about how this event came about, and then I'm going to pass it over to Michael Schmidt, the uh, editor of Carcanet. Um, I saw the um, Carcanet's forthcoming publications in about November and was leaping through it and saw the New York School Poets anthology and thought, fantastic, we've got to do something. So um, I I called Michael first to see if he would like to do something in London, and and he said yes, and and I realized that it would be far too big to put on at the Poetry Society, so um, the London Review Bookshop very graciously offered to um to put it on here so that's why it's here tonight it's wonderful to see you and i pass over to michael schmidt Hi,
4: thank you very much jules this is really um a great pleasure it's a great pleasure to be in this bookshop and um, those of you who are poetry buffs uh, and haven't been here before should realize that downstairs on the wall as under there is one of the best collections of of poetry for sale There's a lot of poetry for sale up here as well, and as as a publisher, I recommend that no one leaves without visiting the table. And perhaps getting the editor, Mark Ford, who will be reading tonight and talking uh, to to sign the book, along with the other readers who are Piotr Sommer, who's translated all of the uh, poets in this anthology into into Polish, Uh, Sarah Maguire, a long-standing admirer of these poets, and of course, Lee Harwood, who has a long and close relationship with the New York School. Uh, My relationship with the New York School began in a kind of vexed way. Uh, In 1977, uh, I purchased from the American publisher uh, the rights to publish Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. For some reason, Kate, which had published Ashbery before, had closed its poetry list, and we were were the lucky heirs of some of the uh, the debris from that list. And the most valuable piece of debris uh, in human poetic terms was, um, was John Ashbery. Uh, we published self portrait in Convex Mirror long before I had met the poet, and uh, after publishing it, he refused to speak to his English publisher for about two or three years because he hated the cover so much. And uh, I saw nothing wrong with the cover at the time I designed it myself. But I have since come to share his point of view. It's not a very pretty book. Um, and we, we must have met at last in, in 1978 or 9, and we became... Um, Friends, I think he. Whenever he came to England, we would, we would um, uh, launch one of his books, or we would we would have a lunch, and uh, and we really became. I mean, I really loved him as as a person. He was very generous, and he and another English poet and an English poet rather, who uh, who I think first alerted me to to Ashbury John Ash, uh, kept urging me to look at the other members of the New York School. In 1987, at last, being a slow reader, um, ten years later, I added. <laughs> the collaborative novel that uh, John had written with uh, with James Schuyler to the list, Um, and then James Schuyler himself joined the list in 1990, and then uh, Kenneth Koch and James, and um, Kenneth Koch and and O'Hara were added to the list in 1991. So we have a long association with the New York School. Um, Whenever John came to England, he sometimes came for readings, he sometimes just came for, for pleasure. Uh, usually pleasure involved in a reading or two. Uh, I took him once to the the Cambridge Poetry Festival. Um, I remember uh, that I took him to hear a reading by by Charles Tomlinson in the in the Union, and uh, as we came out, he said to me, "I've never heard Charles Tomlinson read before. He's a real barrel of laughs." <laughs> that was the only time uh, John Ashbury story made my my great guru Donald Davy laugh because John Donald wasn't very keen on, on John's work or, in fact, the fact that I published it. John, after that visit in 1985, wrote me a a very nice letter in which he was advocating the publication of certain things. And he says, um, he says, I have feelings about which poems I would like to publish in England and which in America, and presumably will have them also about the ones I haven't written yet. For instance, Daffy Duck in Hollywood would be right for England. It was published in the TLS because the English Seems so much more knowledgeable about American pop culture than we are. Um, he then said, I'm sending you a copy of A Nest of Ninnies, the collaborative work of producer James Schuyler, in a plain brown wrapper. As you know, I would love it if you published it, but that, of course, is not for me to decide. I do think the English reader would be pleased to have a book with my name attached to it that he or she could understand and perhaps even enjoy. To quote the opening lines of Malcolm Elwyn's biography of Landor, one of the books I bought at Rotas, which was overnight visit, he said, the English have always preferred mediocrity and the commonplace to magnanimity and genius. Comfort is the condition most to be desired, perhaps because, as Hazlitt said, the English are certainly the most uncomfortable of all people in themselves. And they glance a scant at the disturber of their peace. What I like about that is we we move from, from a quotation from a biography of Lander to a quotation from Hazlitt, this moving in and in and in. And I think this is what, what John does quite a lot. My One of my happiest memories was in, in it must have been 1990, um, just before Christmas, going to a party in New York with John. John took uh, my partner and me to to a party somewhere on Fifth Avenue. I, I can't actually remember whose house it was. It was a house with beautiful balconies and lovely views and lots of artwork inside. And at the party was, um, was James Schuyler, who was to die the next year, a rough and, and lovely man who was exceedingly grateful, which is very odd, because no no real poet should be grateful to, to a publisher, it should go the other way around, but he was extremely grateful that he was at last being published in England, and he was very warm and kind. And there was um, Kenneth Koch, who was wonderfully funny and very demanding, Always was wonderfully funny and very demanding, um, and it was the, the one time that I actually met three of the four members of the New York School together, and uh, was very, very moved to have done so, especially in, uh, because I, I never saw Schuyler again. Though Kenneth came to read in Manchester and performed very well, and he was a <laughs> wonderful performer. And I, I never heard Schuyler read, uh, but Ashbury and Coke are great performers that work in very different ways. Anyway, it's, it's a real pleasure uh, to be in this bookshop uh, because, partly because London Review has always been quite supportive of Ashbury and I think this book may conceivably be a what Eliot called Imagism, a locus classicus, that people will turn to, and it may, it may be the time for the New York School in England. Um, English poets have always sort of semi-welcomed the New York poets, and then after a while they got very very tired of them. I, I remember Peter Porter used to praise Ashbery, but doesn't do so as often as he used to, and uh, James Fenton, of course, wrote very positive reviews and then did a very famous negative review in, in the New York Review of Books. And uh, Alan Jenkins, too, declared himself a convert to the, the anti-Ashbury camp, having been pro-Ashbury. I, I suspect that this book will give an opportunity for, for a lot of people to reconsider what is a movement, not a, not a, not a, and, and what is also a series of four really fine individual poets. Anyway, it's a real honor to have Mark to uh, to kick off this evening. I'm curious. <laughs>
5: Uh, thank you very much, Michael. I am um, uh, I am very pleased with this book. It looks very, very beautiful. Um, thank you for doing that. Um, lovely picture by Jane Freilicher uh, on the cover. Um, uh, there's four of us reading. Uh, we're going to read for about 15 minutes each uh, from um, all, all from anywhere in the anthology. So we, we, I decided it would be a bad idea to allot each of us, like the Beatles, you know, a particular... New York poet, which we, whom we then have to impersonate. Um, and uh, I'm going to start off by reading um, from a very, very famous poem uh, by Frank O'Hara, his um, elegy for Billie Holiday, um, whom he saw perform. This Anyone who's interested in, in um, O'Hara will know this poem very well. It's called The Day Lady Died. It is 1220 in New York. A Friday, three days after Bastille Day. Yes, it is 1959 and I go get a shine, because I will get off the 419 in East Hampton at 7.15 and then go straight to dinner and I don't know the people who will feed me. I walk up the muggy street beginning to sun and have a hamburger and a malted and buy an ugly new world writing to see what the poets in Ghana are doing these days. I go on to the bank, and Miss Stillwagon, first name Linda, I once heard, doesn't even look up my balance for once in her life. And in The Golden Griffin, I get a little Verlaine, the Patsy, with drawings by Bonard. although I do think of Hesiod, Trans Richmond Latimore, or Brendan Behan's new play, or Le Balcon, or Les Nègres, of Genet, but I don't. I stick with Verlaine, after practically going to sleep with quandariness. And for Mike, I just stroll into the Park Lane liquor store, and ask for a bottle of Strager, and then I go back where I came from to Sixth Avenue and the tobacconist in the Ziegfeld Theatre, and casually ask for a carton of Gaulois and a carton of Picayune, and a New York Post with her face on it, and I am sweating a lot by now, and thinking of leaning on the John door in the Five Spot, while she whispered a song along the keyboard. Mal Waldron, and everyone and I stopped breathing. Uh, A poem that never loses its power to um, surprise one at the end, however often one reads it, I find. um, O'Hara's had an enormous impact on on almost everyone who's interested or who who, who likes poetry, and um, uh, for me, he was the poet who first made me feel poetry was um, could be cool and hip and fun rather than um, depressing and dull and difficult. Um, and uh, another poem of his, which um, I feel has this, uh, makes um, uh, poetry seem quite fun. Is this one, which is um, like many of his poems, is about a movie, uh, a movie uh, star. This one about Lana Turner. Um, and uh, Frank famously wrote this on the way to a poetry reading um, on, at Staten Island. Uh, Robert Lowell was also reading, and he happened to say, I wrote this on the ferry coming over. And um, Lowell was uh, reputedly um, said when he read Skunk Hour, I didn't write this on the ferry coming over. <laughs> um, uh, poem is just called, like many of his poems, it's just called Poem. Lana Turner has collapsed. I was trotting along, and suddenly it started raining and snowing, and you said it was hailing, but hailing hits you on the head hard, so it was really snowing and raining, and I was in such a hurry to meet you, but the traffic was acting exactly like the sky, and suddenly I saw a headline. Lana Turner has collapsed. There is no snow in Hollywood. There is no rain in California. I have been to lots of parties and acted perfectly disgraceful, but I never actually collapsed. Oh, Lana Turner, we love you. Get up. Um, very, very difficult for me to choose the, um, selection from John uh, Ashbery's work since, um, uh, I'm a very major John Ashbery fan. And, uh, so getting the greatest hit, getting down to the greatest hits was, um, quite a painful process and choosing one to read tonight was, was, was even more difficult. Uh, I've opted just, just I'll read one longish poem, um, which, um, it was one of the first ones that I read and again sort of converted to me. I felt almost like a sort of, I suddenly converted to to a, a cult that I didn't quite understand or know what it meant to be a Ashberian, but I decided I would like to be one. Um, when I had a look at Houseboat Days in a bookshop, um, it was in the um, early eighties. And one of the first poems I read in Houseboat Days was one called Pyrography. And pyrography is a word to describe the process whereby Um, with a sharp uh, tool you might inscribe something on leather or metal, a heated tool uh, on on which you inscribe on leather or metal. And this poem, which was in fact written for the 1976 um, bicentennial of the founding of America, is I think one of his most um, magical um, inscriptions or transcriptions of America. Pyrography. Out here on Cottage Grove it matters The galloping wind bulks at its shadow, the carriages are drawn forward under a sky of fumed oak. This is America calling, the mirroring of state to state, of voice to voice on the wires, the force of colloquial greetings like golden pollen sinking on the afternoon breeze. In service stairs, the sweet corruption thrives. The page of dusk turns like a creaking revolving stage in Warren, Ohio. If this is the way it is, let's leave, they agree, and soon the slow boxcar journey begins, gradually accelerating until the gyrating fans of suburbs enfolding the darkness of cities are remembered only as a recurring tick, and midway we meet the disappointed returning ones without its being able to stop us in the headlong night toward the nothing of the coast. At Bellinas, the houses doze and seem to wonder why through the Pacific haze and the dreams alternately glow and grow dull. Why be hanging on here, like kites circling, slipping on a ramp of air, but always circling? But the variable cloudiness is pouring it on, flooding back to you like the meaning of a joke. The land wasn't immediately appealing. We built it partly over with fake ruins in the image of ourselves an arch that terminates in mid-key stone a crumbling stone pier for laundresses an open-air theatre never completed and only partially designed how are we to inhabit this space from which the fourth wall is invariably missing as in a stage set or dollhouse except by staying as we are in lost profile facing the stars with dozens of as yet unrealized projects and a strict sense of time running out, of evening presenting the tactfully folded-over bill. And we fit rather too easily into it, become transparent, almost ghosts. One day, the birds and animals in the pasture have absorbed the colour, the density of the surroundings. The leaves are alive and too heavy with life. A long period of adjustment followed. In the cities at the turn of the century, they knew about it, but were careful not to let on as the iceman and the milkman disappeared down the block and the postman shouted his daily rounds. The children under the trees knew it, but all the fathers returning home on streetcars after a satisfying day at the office undid it. The climate was still floral and all the wallpaper in a million homes all over the land conspired to hide it. One day we thought of painted furniture, of how it just slightly changes everything in the room and in the yard outside, and how, if we were going to be able to write the history of our time, starting with today, it would be necessary to model all these unimportant details so as to be able to include them. Otherwise, the narrative would have that flat, sandpapered look the sky gets out in the Middle West toward the end of summer, the look of wanting to back out before the argument has been resolved, and at the same time to save appearances so that tomorrow will be pure. Therefore, since we have to do our business in spite of things, why not make it in spite of everything? That way, maybe the feeble lakes and swamps of the back country will get plugged into the circuit, and not just the major events, but the whole incredible mass of everything happening simultaneously and pouring off, channeling itself into history, will unroll as carefully and as casually as a conversation in the next room. And the purity of today will invest us like a breeze, only be hard, spare, ironical, something one can tip one's hat to and still get some use out of. The parade is turning into our street. My stars, the burnished uniforms, and prismatic features of this instant belong here. The land is pulling away from the magic, glittering coastal towns to an aforementioned rendezvous with August and December. The hunch is it will always be this way, the look, the way things first scared you in the night light and later turned out to be. Yet still capable, all the same, of a narrow fidelity to what you and they wanted to become. No size like Russian music, only a vast unraveling out toward the junctions and to the darkness beyond, to these bare fields built at today's expense. Uh, I'll move on to um, Kenneth uh, Koch um, now, who's, um, uh, wrote um, a number of parodies of poets, of other poets, which are always very amusing. Um, and there's one which um, is particularly like, um, there's a William Carlos Williams poem, which runs, um, this is just to say, I've eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. Um, and uh, this little tiny poem, which Williams, and a very you know, um, much anthologized poem, uh, uh, Coke had um, uh, some variations on this, on this poem. Um, little notes he might have left for a beloved or communicated to a beloved. Um, I chopped down the house that you had been saving to live in next summer. (laughs) I am sorry, but it was morning and I had nothing to do and it's wooden beams were so inviting. We laughed at the hollyhocks together and then I sprayed them with lye. Forgive me. I simply do not know what I am doing. I gave away the money that you had been saving to live on for the next 10 years. The man who asked for it was shabby and the firm march wind on the porch was so juicy and cold. Last evening we went dancing and I broke your leg. Forgive me. I was clumsy and I wanted you here in the wards where I am the doctor. (laughs) Um... uh, And lastly, I'll read um, uh, one of many kind of poems which the New York School wrote about each other. Um, O'Hara, Coke, and Schuyler in particular were always um, uh, zinging off poems uh, to each other, uh, keeping everything humming, to use a a phrase of O'Hara's. James Schuyler wrote a number of beautiful uh, poems about Frank O'Hara, and I will read um, To Frank O'Hara. which was written some uh, ten years or so um, after O'Hara's death. And it's dedicated to Don Allen, who was Frank um, O'Hara's editor. Um, The the collected poems, um, actually it it would have been written in 71, the collected poems have just been published uh, in 1971. And now the splendour of your work is here, so complete, even a note on the type, yes, total, even the colophon. And now people you never met will meet and talk about your work. So witty, so sad, so you. Even your lines have a broken nose. And in the crash of certain chewed-up words, I see you again dive into breakers. How you scared us, no, dazzled us, swimming in an electric storm, which is what you were more lives than a cat dancing. You had a feline grace, poised on the balls of your feet, ready to dive, and all of it, your poems, compressed into 20 years. How you charmed, fumed, blew smoke from your nostrils, like a racehorse that just won the race, steaming, eager to run, only you used words. Stay up all night. Who wants to sleep? It is not your voice I hear. It is your words I see, foam flecks and city girders. As once from a crosstown bus, I saw you waiting a cab in light rain drizzle. As once you gave me a driving lesson and the radio (coughs) played the merry widow, it broke us up. As once under the pie plate tree, Paulonia, it broke you up to read Sophie Tucker with the Times in a hammock, had a gold tea service. It's way out on the nut, she said, for service. But it was my dream.
1: Well, hello. Uh, it's uh, a great pleasure to be here with you, and uh, especially on this occasion. I uh, used to come to London and work here uh, when I was a student, very close to here as a receptionist at Gresham Hotel on Bloomsbury Street for quite a while. And uh, back in those days, uh, the new review was still around and uh, it was quite exciting to be meeting quite a few of the people who were working for it and uh, I was learning about the British scene at the time and soon afterwards, in the late 70s I think, I bumped into quite a number of poems from America which were very difficult to have access to back in those days, and especially in Poland and and I was absolutely taken by Frank O'Hara first and, and everybody else in of the, of the bunch. So I translated quite a number of those uh, poems into Polish, and I think uh, that, uh, uh, there may have been other books translated into Polish in mid-80s that may have had uh, even a bigger um, um, ripple or more ripples than the one by Frank O'Hara that I did, but I'd, I'd like to know which one it would have been. Probably uh, there wasn't anything like it. it. It did seem to have quite an impact on, on uh, a number of younger Polish colleagues of mine. Uh, uh, part of the attraction I think was the, was the irreverence um, in the, within the tradition that used to be so occupied, basically, and I hope you will excuse my, my, my metaphor, uh, dealing with uh, how brave the Polish cavalry was. So that, that seemed to be somewhat different than, than that concept of writing, uh, and perhaps that was the reason why uh, the unpredictable and the irreverent had such a great impact. Perhaps the uh, translations didn't do too much harm to the poets. I'm going to read a poem by Frank O'Hara, whose name is uh, Why I'm Not a Painter. I'm not a painter. I'm a poet. Why? I think I would rather be a painter, but I'm not. Well, for instance, Mike Goldberg is starting a painting. I drop in, sit down and have a drink, he says. I drink, we drink. I look up. You have sardines in it. Yes, it needed something there. Oh, I go and the days go by, and I drop in again. The painting is going on and I go, and the days go by. I drop in. The painting is finished. Where is sardines? All that's left is letters. It was too much, Mike says, but me. One day I'm thinking of a colour. Orange. I write a line about orange. Pretty soon it is a whole page of words, not lines. Then another page. There should be so much more, not of orange, of words. Of how terrible orange is and life. Days go by. It is even in prose. I'm a real poet. My poem is finished and I haven't mentioned orange yet. It's twelve poems. I call it oranges. And one day in the gallery, I see Mike's painting called Sardines.
2: <laughs>
1: it, 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 when I bumped into, into it, I think it was the first poem by Frank O'Hara that I, that I read. It, it seemed so... Yeah, it, it seemed precisely all that should be done in, in poetry, and how it should be done without stressing it with the light touch. And, so it was, it was wonderful. The, the next one that I'm going to read uh, is a late um, is, is a, is a mo- more recent poem by, by John Ashbury than that early poem by Frank O'Hara or rather mid-career poem by Frank O'Hara um, The History of, of My Life comes from his uh, book called uh, My Name uh, Here, which I think is his pre-last book Am I
0: right? Maybe. Yeah.
1: Your Name Here <laughs> The History of My Life Once upon a time there were two brothers, then there was only one, myself. I grew up fast before learning to dry even. There was I, a stinking adult. I thought of developing interests someone might take an interest in, no so I became very weepy for what had seemed like the pleasant early years. As I aged, increasingly, I also grew more charitable with regard to my thoughts and ideas, thinking them at least as good as the next man's. Then a great devouring cloud came and loitered on the horizon, drinking it up for what seemed like months or years. That That is a poem that comes from a book that was uh, dedicated, I think, to uh, the memory of, uh, um, of a close friend of John Asbury's, uh, Pierre Martori, who died uh, just a year before. Uh, <clears throat> the poem by Kenneth Cope that I'm going to read um, is a title poem of one of his more recent books, uh, maybe uh, three books ago was published One Train May Hide Another. It was called One Train. And I think you, ha- you have a, the Kalkenet edition of it here. <coughs> I rather think, <coughs> and I discovered that rather late, uh, that um, Kenneth Koch is a, <coughs> is a master of sequence. Um, uh, he really, almost the best things that he did and, and wrote seemed to be running in sequences. He's very methodical in them, too. Sort of as if he wouldn't be able to start another one before he c- completes and sort of finishes. and e- I mean, exhausts uh, the concept. This one is a, lo- a somewhat longer poem. It's like uh, two pages long. But uh, uh, it seems to me to, to, to sort of summarize that ability in a, in a form of form of enumeration type of poem, even though it doesn't seem to be quite that way. One train may hide another. I find it very moving. Sign at a railroad crossing in Kenya. In a poem, one line may hide another line. As at a crossing, one train may hide another train. That is, if you are waiting to cross the tracks, wait to do it for for one moment, at least, after that first train is gone. And so when you read, wait wait until you have read the next line, then it is safe to go on reading. In a family, one sister may conceal another. So when you are courting, it's best to have them all in view. (laughs) Otherwise, in coming to find one, you may love another. One father or one brother may hide the man, if you are a woman, whom you have been waiting to love. So always standing in front of something the other, as words stand in front of objects, feelings, and ideas. One wish may hide another, and one person's reputation may hide the reputation of another. One dog may conceal another on the lawn, so if you escape the first one, you're not necessarily safe. <laughs> one lilac may hide another, and then lots a lot of lilacs. And on the Appia Antica, one tomb may hide a number of other tombs. In love, one reproach may hide another, One small complaint may hide a great one. One injustice may hide another. One colonial may hide another. One blaring red uniform, another, and another, a whole column. One bath may hide another bath. And when, after bathing, one walks out into the rain, one idea, I'm sorry, one bath may hide another bath. As when, after bathing, one walks out into the rain, one idea may hide another. Life is simple hide life is incredibly complex as in the prose of Gertrude Stein one sentence hides another and is another as well and is another as well and in the laboratory one invention may hide another invention one evening may hide another one shadow a nest of shadows one dark red or one blue or one purple this is a painting by someone after Matisse one waits and the tracks until they pass these hidden doubles or sometimes likenesses. One identical twin may hide the other, and there may, and there may be even more in there. The obstetrician gazes at the valley of the Var. We used to live there, my wife and I, but one life hid another life, and now she's gone. I'm here. A vivacious mother hides a gawky daughter. The daughter hides her own vivacious daughter in turn. They are in a railway station, and the daughter is holding holding a bag, bigger than her mother's bag, and successfully hides it. In offering to pick up the daughter's bag, one finds oneself confronted by the mother's, and has to carry that one, too. So one hitchhiker may deliberately hide another one, another, and one cup of coffee another, too, until one is overexcited. One love may hide another love, or the same love, as when I love you suddenly rings, falls, and one discovers the better love lingering behind, as when I'm full of doubts hides I'm certain about something and it is that. And one dream may hide another, as is well known always too. In the
3: Garden of Eden, For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Adam and Eve may hide the real Adam and Eve. Jerusalem may hide another Jerusalem. When you come to something, stop to let it pass so you can see what else is there. At home, no matter where, internal tracks pose dangers, Two, one memory. Certainly hides hides another. That being what memory is all about. The eternal reverse succession of contemplated entities. Reading A Sentimental Journey, look around when you have finished for Tristam Shandy. To see if it is standing there, it should be stronger and more profound. And theretofore hidden, as Santa Maria Maggiore may be hidden by similar churches inside Rome. One, sidewalk may hide another, as when you're asleep there, and one song hide another song. A pounding upstairs hide the beating of drums. One friend may hide another. You sit at the foot of a tree with one, and when you get up to leave there is another whom you'd have preferred to talk to all along. One teacher, one doctor, one ecstasy, one illness, one woman, one man may hide another. Pause. To let the first one pass, you think, now it is safe to cross, and you are hit by the next one. It can be important to have waited at least a moment to see what was already there. And the poem that I chose to read by James Schuyler is called Shimmer. The pear tree that was last year was. I'm sorry, the pear tree that last year was heavy laden, this year bears little fruit. Was it that wet spring we had? All the pear tree leaves go shimmer all at once. The August sun blasts down into the coolness from the ocean. The New York Times is on strike, my daily fare. I'll starve. Not quite. On my sill, balls of twine wrapped up in cellophane glitter, the brown, the white, and what I think you'd call écru. The sunlight falls partly in a cup. It has a blue transfer of two boys, a dog and a duck, and says, Come away, Pompey." I like that cup, half full of sunlight. Today you could take up the tattered shadows of the grass, roll them and stow them, and collect the shimmerings in a cup like the coffee here at my right hand.
6: It's so nice to be asked to read poems that I haven't written Um, and uh, I really like reading aloud and I particularly like reading aloud things that I haven't written so this is a great treat and it 's also a particular pleasure to be reading these wonderful poems from this anthology that Marcus edited, I think so skillfully and um, as Michael said in the introduction, I do think that and I certainly hope and i 'm sure all of us hope that this book um, will make a, a big difference to the way that the New York poets are seen in this country because by and large they 're either marginalized or looked down on or both and I think for me, the important thing about them i mean there's lots of important things, but I suppose. It's about music, really, in the sense that there's a lot of poetry written in this country that I just find just bullied by um, in the in its in its insistence of its music. And what I like about all of these poets is that you can tell that they listen to a lot of very different music and particularly jazz, um, which is what I like listening to. Um, And that comes into their poetry and in the sense, not just in the sound of the poetry, but in the attitude of the poet towards the poetry. And I think that's incredibly important. I'm going to read um, a poem by Frank O'Hara, which is one of those poems he described as being his I do this, I do that kind of poems. Um, And just that kind of offhand way that he talked about his poems um, which actually a lot of other poets could have taken this on and said, "Well, this is a sort of you know methodologically and ontologically terribly important in what I'm doing here." Blah blah. And actually, they are really important. These poems, and I think what's significant about them is the way that they ground this wonderful, evanescent, sub subjective experience that we all have every day, into some kind of order. And you know that he's in a particular time and a particular place, and and it's all there. Um, the whole of the world is in this in this these small poems. Um, This one is called A Step Away From Them. It's my lunch hour, so I go for a walk among the hum-coloured cabs. First down the sidewalk where labourers feed their dirty, glistening torsos, sandwiches and Coca-Cola with yellow helmets on. They protect them from falling bricks, I guess. Then onto the avenue where skirts are flipping above heels and blow up over grates. The sun is hot, but the cabs stir up the air. I look at bargains in wristwatches. There are cats playing in sawdust. On to Times Square where the sign blows smoke over my head and higher the waterfall pours lightly. A negro stands in a doorway with a toothpick, languorously agitating. A blonde chorus girl clicks. He smiles and rubs his chin. Everything suddenly honks. It is 12.40 of a Thursday. Neon in daylight is a great pleasure, as Edwin Denby would write, as are light bulbs in daylight. I stop for a cheeseburger at Juliet's Corner. Giulietta Massina, wife of Federico Fellini E Bellatrice, and chocolate malted a lady in foxes on such a day puts a puts her poodle in a cab there are several Puerto Ricans on the Avenue today which makes it beautiful and warm first Bunny died then John Latouche then Jackson Pollock but is the earth as uh, is the earth as full as life was full of them And one has eaten and one walks past the magazines with nudes and the posters for Bullfight and the Manhattan Storage Warehouse, which they'll soon tear down. I used to think they had the armory show there. A glass of papaya juice and back to work. My heart is in my pocket. It is Poems by Pierre Révedy. I'm going to read two small poems by John Ashbery and um, uh, very unlike um, the long poem that um, um, Mark read earlier in that, well, they aren't, but they are, but they're so, this is a very early one called Some Trees um, and it shows his beautiful lyricism um, to perfection. Some trees, these are amazing each joining a neighbor as though speech were a still performance. Arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it, you and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are. That their merely being there means something. That soon we may touch, love, explain. And glad Not to have invented such commonness, we are surrounded. A silence already filled with noises, a canvas on which emerges a chorus of smiles, a winter morning. Placed in a puzzling light and moving, our days put on such reticence, these accents seem their own defence. City Afternoon A veil of haze protects this long-ago afternoon forgotten by everybody in this photograph, most of them now sucked screaming through old age and death. If one could seize America, or at least a fine forgetfulness that seeps into our outline, defining our volumes with a stain that is fleeting too, but commemorates because it does define, after all, grey garlands that threesome, waiting for the light to change, air lifting the hair of one upside down in the reflecting pool. Kenneth Koch has made all the poems make everybody laugh um, and this is another one, but I mean, like the others that everyone's read um, so far, They're extraordinarily intelligent poems about the nature of the world, and I think this one in particular about how one writes a poem and what is in a poem and how it gets to be there. It's called The Simplicity of the Unknown Past. Out the window, the cow out the window, the steel frame out the window, the rusted candle stand. Out the window, the horse, the handleless pan, real things. Inside the window, my heart that only beats for you. A verse of Verlaine. Inside the window of my heart is a style and a showplace of onion-like construction. Inside the window is a picture of a cat, and outside the window is the cat indeed, jumping up now to the top of the roof of the garage. Its paws help take it there. Inside this window is a range of things which outside the window are like stars, arranged but huge in fashion. Outside the window is a car, the rusted wheel of a bicycle. Inside it are words and paints, outside smooth hair of a rabbit, just barely seen. Inside the glass of this window is a notebook with little marks. They are words. Outside this window is a wall with little parts. They are stones. Inside this window is the start, and outside is the beginning. A heart beats, the cat leaps, the room is light, the sun is almost blinding. Inside this body is a woman, inside whom is a star of some kind or other, which is like a uterus, and outside the window, a farm machine starts. <laughs> um, Mark said earlier that he decided not to ask um, the four of us to pick one of the poems, one of the poets to read. Um, he didn't want to turn us into the Fab Four, but I think if I had to make that choice, I would have wanted to be James Schuyler. Um, and uh, I just love his poems. And again, it's this sort of, the way that he focuses on on the intimacy of detail Um, and he often dates and times his poems in the way that O'Hara does and um, he also um, writes so beautifully about flowers Um, I think he's one of the great 20th century poets who who writes about flowers and gardens Um, and I've done a bit of that in my time Um, this is called The Blewit. And is it stamina that unseasonably freaks forth a bluet, a Quaker lady by the lake? So small, a drop of sky that splashed and held, four-petalled, creamy in its throat. The woods around were brown, the air crisp as a car's table water biscuit, and smelt of cider. There were frost apples on the trees in the field below the house. The pond was still, then broke into a ripple. The hills, the leaves that have not yet fallen, are deep and oriental rug colours. Brown leaves in the woods set off grey trunks of trees. But that blew it was the focus of it all. Last spring, next spring, what does it matter? Unexpected as a tear when someone reads a poem you wrote for him. It's this line here. That blue, it breaks me up, tiny spring flower, late, late in dour October. And I'm going to end by reading another of um, Skylar's wonderful flower poems. Um, this one is called Korean Mums. Um, chrysanthemums, as I'm sure you know. Um, and in fact, he tells us in a minute. Korean mums beside me in this garden are huge and daisy-like. Why not? Are not oxeye daisies a chrysanthemum? Shrubby and thick-stalked, the leaves pointing up, the stems from which the flowers burst in sunbursts. I love this garden in all its moods, even under its winter coat of salt hay, or now, in October, more than half gone over. Here a rose, there a clump of aconite. This morning, One of the dogs killed a barn owl. Bob saw it happen, tried to intervene. The Airedale snapped its neck and left it lying. Now the bird lies buried by an apple tree. Last evening, from the table we saw the owl, huge in the dusk, circling the field on owl's silent wings. The first one ever seen here. Now it's gone, a dream you just remember. The dogs are barking. In the studio, music plays and Bob and Dara paint. I sit scribbling in a little notebook at a garden table, too hot in a heavy shirt in the mid-October sun, into which the Korean mums all face. There is a dull book with me, an apple core, cigarettes, an ashtray. Behind me, the rue I gave Bob flourishes. Light on leaves. So much to see, and all I really see is that owl, its bulk troubling the twilight. I'll soon forget it. What is there I have not forgotten? Or one day will forget. This garden, the breeze in stillness, even the words, Korean mums.
0: I think you've poets are long dead. There's, there's no problem reading them because they can't really get you. Um, as we've witnessed recently when I think of all those children throughout Britain recited Wordsworth's daffodils. Uh, but um, when, when somebody's still alive uh, or only recently dead, uh, to catch the, uh, the tone of voice, the, the pace they have, it is daunting. Um, <clears throat> I want to read two poems by John Ashby and two by Jimmy Skyler. And the Ashby poem, I mean, how do you catch the, the drive of his meditations? I can't think of another word for the poems. It's difficult. <clears throat> I, I'm going to read a poem of his called Soonest Mended. Uh, which first appeared in the his collection The Double Dream of Spring in in nineteen seventy. Barely tolerated living on the margin in our technological society, we're always having to be rescued on the brink of destruction, like heroines in Orlando Furioso before it's time to start all over again. There would be thunder in the bushes, a rustling of coils, and Angelica, in the Angra painting, was considering the colorful but small monster near her toe, as though wondering whether forgetting the whole thing might not, in the end, be the only solution. And then there always came a time when happy hooligan in his rusted green automobile came plowing down the course just to make sure everything was okay. Only by that time, we were in another chapter and confused about how to receive this latest piece of information. Was it information? Weren't we rather acting this out for someone else's benefit? Thoughts in a mind with room enough? and to spare for our little problems. So they began to seem our daily quandary about food and the rent and bills to be paid. To reduce all this to a small variant, to step free at last, minuscule on the gigantic plateau. This was our ambition, to be small and clear and free alas the summer's energy wanes quickly a moment and it is gone no longer may we make the necessary arrangements simple as they are our star was brighter perhaps when it had water in it now there's no question even of that but only of holding on to the hard earth so as not to be thrown off with an occasional dream a vision a robin flies across the upper corner of the window you brush your hair away and cannot quite see or a wound will flash against the sweet faces of the others something like this is what you wanted to hear so why do you think of listening to something else we're all talkers it is true but underneath the talk lies the moving and not wanting to be moved the loose meaning untidy and simple like a threshing floor. These then were some hazards of the course. Yet though we knew the course was hazards and nothing else, it was still a shock when almost a quarter of a century later, the clarity of the rules dawned on us for the first time. They were the players and we who had struggled in the game were merely spectators. Though subject to its vicissitudes, and moving with it out of the cheerful stadium, borne on shoulders, at last, night after night, this message returns, repeated, in the flickering bulbs of the sky, raised past us, taken away from us, yet ours over and over until the end that is past truth, the being of our sentences, and the climate that fostered them, not ours to own like a book, to be, but to be with, and sometimes to be without, alone and desperate. But the fancy makes it ours, a kind of fence-sitting raised to the level of an aesthetic ideal. These were moments, years solid with reality, faces, nameable events, kisses, heroic acts, but like the friendly beginning of a geometrical progression, not too reassuring, as though meaning could be cast aside some day when it had been outgrown. Better, you said, to stay cowering like this in the early lessons, since the promise of learning is a delusion. And I agreed, adding that tomorrow would alter the course of what had already been learned. That the learning process is extended in this way so that from this standpoint none of us ever graduates from college from time the time is an emulsion and probably thinking not to grow up is the brightest kind of maturity for us right now at any rate and you see both of us were right though nothing has somehow come to nothing The avatars of our conforming to the rules and living around the home have made, well, in a sense, good citizens of us. Brushing the teeth and all that, and learning to accept the charity of the hard moments as they are doled out, for this is action. This is not being sure, this careless preparing, sowing the seeds crooked in the furrow, making ready to forget and always coming back to the mooring of starting out that day so long ago. I was found listening to Ashby Reading was like being underwater, and you sort of you you'd come up to the surface of it soft and clatch a line and then sink back down again. <laughs> and it works chemically, not logically. Um this is an earlier poem um, of his, um, which f- first appeared in the Donald Allen anthology in 1962. Um, no, 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 I'm wrong, sorry. Um, it, was, it appeared in the Tennis Court Oath in 1962, and was probably written in the late 50s. <coughs> Titled, uh, The Dream Only of America. They dream only of America to be lost among the 13 million pillars of grass. This honey is delicious, though it burns the throat. And hiding from darkness in barns, they can be grown-ups now, and the murderous ashtray is more easily the lake, a lilac cube. He holds a key in his right hand. Please, he asked willingly. He is thirty years old. That was before we could drive hundreds of miles at night through dandelions. When his headache grew worse we stopped at a wire filling station. Now he cared only about signs. Was the cigar a sign? And what about the key? He went slowly into the bedroom. I would not have broken my leg if I had not fallen against the living room table. It is, what is it to be back beside the bed? There's nothing to do for our liberation except wait in the horror of it. And I am lost without you. Now I want to read um, the two Skylar poems, which again, are a slightly long one and a short one. This is a poem titled, Uh, Empathy and New Year, which uh, first appeared in the Skylar's collection, The Crystal Lithium, in 1972. I mean, Skyler's tone is, is, again, Inimitable and also totally the other end of the spectra to Ashbury in the sense that it's this, this deceptively relaxed conversational tone which I, I just find magical and, and and you can see if you read his diaries how they all flow in and out of the poems this is total, preface uh, t- prefaced, some um, Empathy and New Year prefaced by uh, a quote from Levi Strauss uh, which is, a notion like that of empathy inspires great distrust in us because it connotes a further dose of irrationalism and mysticism. One, Whitman took the cars all the way from Camden, and when he got there, or rather, sorry, sorry again, Whitman took the cars all the way from Camden and when he got here, or rather there, said, quit quoting and took the next back through the Jersey Meadows, which were that then. But what if it is all mere illusion? I doubt it, though men are not so inventive, or few are. Not knowing a name for something proves nothing. Right now, it isn't raining, snowing, sleeting, slushing. Yet it is doing something. As a matter of fact, it is raining snow. Snow from cold clouds that melt as it strikes. To look out a window is to sense wet feet. Now, to infuse the garage with a subjective state and can't make it seem to, even if it is all a little like what the dentist saw a dark gullet with gleams and red. You come to me at midnight and say, I can smell that after Christmas letdown coming like a hound, and clarify, I can smell it just like a hound does. So it came. It's a shame expectations are so often to be counted on. New Year is nearly here, and who, knowing himself, would endanger his desires, resolving them in a formula. After a while, even a wish flashing by as a thought provokes a knock on wood, so often a little dish-like place worn in this desk just holds a lucky stone inherited from an unlucky man. 1968. What a lovely name to give a year. (laughs) Even better than the dogs Wirt, Bird Thou Never and Woofy. Personally, I'm going to call the new year Mutt. Flattering it will get you nowhere. Second section, awake at four and heard a snowplow not rumble, a huge beast at its chow, and wondered, is it 1968 or 1969 for a bit? 1968 had such a familiar sound, got coffee and started reading Darwin. So modest, so innocent so pleased at the surprise that he should grow up to be him.
2: <laughs>
0: How grand to begin a new year with a new writer you really love. A snow shovel scrapes, it's 12 hours later, and the sun that came so late is almost gone. A few pink minutes, and yet the days get longer. Coming from the movies last night, snow had fallen in almost still air, and lay on all, so all twigs were emboldened to make big disclosures. It felt warm, warm that is for cold, the way it does when snow falls without wind. A snow picture, you said, under the clung to elms, worth painting. I said, the weather operator said, turning tomorrow to bitter cold. Then the wind will veer round to the north and blow all of it down. Maybe I thought it will get cold some other way. You, as usual, were right. It did and has. Night and snow and the threads of life for once, seen as they are, in ropes like roots. And i finish with a, a a short poem, uh, titled February, um, this is the one that did appear in the, the Don 1960 anthology, but first appeared in, uh, Skyler's collection, deeply, um, God, my, my eyesight's really going, freely espousing, in, 69. Um, February. A chimney breathing a little smoke. The sun I can't see making a bit of pink I can't quite see in the blue. The pink of five tulips at 5 p.m. on the day before March 1st. The green of the tulip stems and leaves like something I can't remember finding a jack in the pulpit a long time ago and far away. Why was it December then and the sun was on the sea by the temples we'd gone to see? One green wave moved in the violet sea like the UN building on big evenings, green and wet while the sky turns violet. A few almond trees had a few flowers like a few snowflakes, out of the blue looking pink in the light. A grey hush in which the boxy trucks roll up Second Avenue into the sky. They're just going over the hill. The green leaves of the tulips on my desk, like the grass light on flesh, and a green copper steeple, and streaks of clouds beginning to glow. I can't get over how it all works in together. Like a woman who just came to her window and stands there, filling it, jogging her baby in her arms. She's so far off. Is it the light that makes the baby pink? I can see the little fists and the rocking horse motion of her breasts it's getting greyer and gold and chilly two dog-sized lions face each other at the corners of a roof. It's the yellow dust inside the tulips it's the shape of a tulip. It's the water in the drinking glass the tulips are in. It's a day like any other Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.